this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 121 with Isaac Bowman, DP of the second season of Loki. Enjoy. Have you been, uh, have you been watching anything cool recently? You know, I actually just had a baby, so suddenly watch input has dramatically declined however my wife and i uh typically watch one episode of television each night and we've been able to maintain that uh during the baby we started watching the sopranos now in the second season had you not seen it before oh i'd seen it before oh okay it was just time just, to get back in there yeah it's kind of pretty most of what we've watched together has been rewatches. you know we did the whole star trek franchise yeah. uh we just finished the X-Files, actually, which I'd seen before, and now we've moved on to Sopranos. So all the classics. Yeah, me, me and my girlfriend did Next Generation. She didn't bite on Deep Space Nine. And then uh, <laughs> and then we did uh, Doctor Who, because we that's actually how we started dating. was on the hinge. It was like, I watched Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, like, like rewatch from the beginning, like 1960s Doctor No, Who? just all the news. So um, Eccleston forward. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Those are those are always fun cuz then you get to talk about talk about it in like a few levels deeper way when someone's already seen it and like thoroughly enjoys something versus showing something to someone for the first time for a lot of times you having to explain. Oh, actually this is the reason why, you know. Yeah. Yeah, those shows, I mean, I know Disney's all uh Easter eggy, but those Star Trek ones are, you gotta, sometimes you really gotta understand like the geopolitics of an entire star system. And you're like, ah, otherwise that doesn't, he's not really a tailor. He's an assassin. <laughs> Helpful to watch it from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's funny is now, uh, uh, the one that I've been answering when people ask me that it's like, it's been your show, not cause they send me the screeners that does help, but it's just, I've, uh, I thought Loki was one of the, uh, the better, uh, products that Disney's put out in a while. Um, and season two was just, it was the first one. Thank you very much. Yeah. Loki, we're all really excited with how it turned out and we're excited that everybody's been feeling the same way as us. Yeah. Did I, I was listening to a podcast you were on, uh, recently and then, so you, you went to college at USC. That's right. In, uh, what sounded like a, a frat house that wasn't a frat house. I went to um, USC from 2007 to 2009. Mm. Uh, pretty much the entire time I was there, all of my roommates were um, frat guys. Gotcha. Uh, you know, it's a big Greek life school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I kind of embraced. I actually loved it at USC. I dropped out, but not because I didn't enjoy it there or I didn't like being in film school. I was in the production program there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I met someone who's still one of my best friends and he, long story short, he decided that he was going to leave school to make a movie. And he asked me if I wanted to, to make it with him and to, well, it. Yeah. and, um, I felt like I couldn't say no, you know, the whole point of film school is to set yourself up for a film career. But if you can just start your career, why not go for it? Yeah. Yeah, no, literally. Uh, so I was going to ask if you had any advice about film school for people who are listening and kind of going into that. 
Although I have seen the demographics of this podcast and it does skew our age. But in any case, uh, that's 100% the way I feel like. I went to ASU for film school, so not as prestigious. But uh, one of my friends made bad choices later, but one of my friends was like shooting tons and tons of music videos to the point where like he wasn't going to class. And a bunch of the teachers would get mad and then some of them were like, honestly, if he's already doing it, he doesn't need to learn it. Like he's already, you're not hurting my feelings by not being in class and doing the thing you should be doing. You know, he's not partying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My advice for film school is, you know, it's, it's, I, I think you should go to film school if you want to go to college. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Not going to get much out of it in terms of learning about filmmaking, to be perfectly frank. Um, filmmaking is something that's learned on set and film school sets are artificial, uh, fake sets because everyone there also doesn't know what they're doing. Um, you learn from being on a set where other people, most of the other people do know what they're doing. Right. Um, so, uh, there's some really good film programs. I mean, USC, for example, had an incredible critical studies program, not the production program itself, but learning about movies not about making movies but about movies that's something i found very valuable that i would have never gotten if i didn't go to film school yeah and that's kind of the opposite of what you think because it's not the production program but ultimately i probably got more out of the studying movies part than i did out of the product learning supposedly learning about production part of film school i uh yeah that checks out yeah I was, I was going to say, uh, the, uh, unfortunately, like when I was in school that people would always clown on the film and media studies department, but nowadays, especially, you know, cause that was like 2008, um, you know, you can learn the production part from like books and online, you know, it's not, it's the studies part. That's a lot harder. There's not a ton of YouTube videos, like critically looking at classics or even modern films in a way that, um, you know, it, it, the, doing it the academic way, let's call it for lack of a better term, is usually better than just theories and fun, you know, because it, it'll it teaches you how to make the movies like uh, I, how to make movies. Yeah. <laughs> Not how to make them, but how to make the movie part. That sounded uh, dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So did that film that you did with your buddy, because I was checking out your uh, your website, you have like hundreds of music videos uh, and commercials. Did did that uh, first film kind of launch the music video career or did it come around a different way? Because normally everyone starts in music videos, it seems. That's a good question. You know, that film actually ended up uh, coming around in a different way. It took a long time, but it didn't lead to the launch of my actual career. No. Mm. I made that movie in spring of two th- or uh, in fall of 2009. We prepped it over the summer. And as soon as the movie was finished, you know, we were sure we had a hit on our hands and that, you know, our careers would be good to go. Um, and so I was like, well, but just in case I'm going to buy a DSLR at that time, the popular one was the 5D Mark II. Oh yeah, baby. And, uh, you know, I'll be able to still do some gigs until this movie comes out and, and I'm, you know, one of the next, uh, biggest DPs in Hollywood. Right. And 
Uh, so yeah, sure enough that, that DSLR really came in handy. Uh, <laughs> I spent the next, uh, three years, call it approximately three years shooting primarily lowish, no-ish budget rap videos, mm-hmm. um, and like Craigslist short films, which were often for like local LA film programs at, you know, kind of like community college versions of film school, like the New York right. film Academy or the LA film school that I taught at night. Of- okay. Yeah. So I would shoot, you know, well, night, um, and LAFS stuff and, and, and stuff like that. And then just shorts that weren't coming out of one of those programs, but was just a filmmaker trying to get something off the ground and was looking to hire their crew on Craigslist. Right. It Craigslist pretty hard. Um, so I spent about three years doing that type of work until I one of those jobs, it was just kind of another one of those jobs, ended up being with a director who had a tremendous amount of potential. And luckily, you know, pure luck, basically, the artist that we did the video for um, blew up. And that video was one of the things that served... Uh, that was ASAP Rocky's peso video. Oh, sure, yeah. And and after that, I started getting some real traction. Eventually, I mean, it's a, it's a slow start, but that video allowed myself and that director to do a uh, more, somewhat more professional, properly budgeted music video where the budget was five thousand dollars. Yeah, out of rent. Instead of zero. Yeah. Which is what- in fact, ASAP Rocky still owes us about twenty five hundred dollars in airfare. But um that is neither here nor there. <laughs> but um we started doing, you know, we did another rap video that was a little bit bigger, and then that one we started to do some not rap videos that were a little bit bigger. You know, we got a couple seven thousand dollar budget videos after that. Well, and still at this point in my career is just me and this director of Teen Begary. Um, he was my only director that I was working with really at this time. Um, the only one who was building career wise with me. And after we'd done a couple really good, not rap videos, we both gained actual career traction. That was in the call it late spring, uh, 2012 at that point. Uh, that's when things started to really heat up and I started to have a real career. Right. Yeah. The, uh, whenever <laughs> I, can't, I think I was talking to Rob Yeoman about this, but the idea of working for free is a bad idea unless it isn't because <laughs> yeah. you know, there's no, there's no other really way to break in. So if you see an opportunity, you're like, well, I guess I got to take that one. And then you, you get to build a reel up whatever there's definitely like a thing out there like a meme in the uh film community of never worked for free working for free is bad we need to end free work all that kind of stuff but the truth is i you know many of us would not have a career if we hadn't i worked for free for years you know yeah or very low rates on jobs i wouldn't have done unless they were paying me a very low rate but anything that i did that was good i did for free the entirety of the body of work that built the foundation of my career was done not just for free, but putting money into it, you know? Right. So, um, I 
I just, I guess I've got to preach what I practiced, which was, you know, free work. Yeah. Well, and to the other thing that, um, I think I was talking about, I think it was the element I got to interview, uh, I guess yours will, I think yours might come out before them, but in any case, I interviewed Rob Yeoman and Rob Richardson back to back. And like both of those conversations just melded together. And I'm like, I can't remember who, anyway, it doesn't matter. It was just cool. Uh, it's exciting for me. Um, but it was not only to take free work, but exactly like you said, happened to you a lot of times on these, maybe not even free gigs, but like lower budgeted gigs that might, you know, be quote unquote beneath you, you end up meeting someone who's also doing a lower budget gig that's beneath them. And if you guys mesh, you know, one can help the other leapfrog up big time. And it's all about, you know, early on in your career for forever for your entire career, but in early in your career, such a critical stage, um, collaboration is key. You know, filmmaking is a team sport. And whenever anyone asks me for advice, an aspiring filmmaker, director, DP, the, the one piece of advice I give again and again and again, and I never change is focus on building the team, find like-minded individuals who share your tastes that are similar level in their journey through the film industry. Uh, find people that you can create that synergy with and where when you make things together, it is greater than the sum of your two parts combined. You know, you're looking for an exponential effect with this other person. It's not one plus one equals two. You're looking for yourself plus this other person equals, you know, 100. Right. That is the key. And that's exactly what I found in Obtain Bagheri. And I'll be forever grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's another thing too, that's hard, right? Like you want to be given credit for your contribution, but just your contribution in a vacuum, oftentimes it isn't enough to be credit worthy. For instance, I've said a million times on this podcast that, uh, you know, the cinematographer often gets, um, credit for what the production designer did. Totally. You know, and they're, they're, you two are, you know, costuming, everyone's elevating each other. You can't just have one. No one's looking at Loki and going, oh, the cinematography is amazing when they're really thinking about sets or the cool jackets or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's funny. I was talking to uh, the production designer of Loki, Kasra Farahani, about this recently. Another film that I shot, Deliver Us, which is actually what that first film I was speaking about, it's what that eventually led to. So oh, cool. I just we just put out a film called Deliver Us, directed by Leroy Koontz and Crew Enos, the folks that I dropped out of USC with, and it's spectacular, and it's been well-received, and it looks really good. And um, we were talking about how good it looked, Kasra and I, and I was like, and you know, it's, it's remarkable because we spent a very... Uh, reasonable amount of money on it for how big the film looks and um you know everyone is always praising the cinematography and stuff but Casper was like great locations yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's always my uh like film student advice is spend all your money on renting locations and getting good costumes because the you know anyone's gonna have a camera you could borrow and it won't matter yeah. anymore not, not not since the mini dv days has it matters yeah Fair enough. Yeah. But you're right. You're right. Production design, the cinematographer often gets credit for the way that the image looks overall, you know, not just production design, but just in people's minds, the wardrobe, the color grade, um, everything, uh, VFX. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, the DP, 
gets a lot of credit for that stuff. But ultimately, the director is the one that gets the credit for everything. So, yeah. Uh, well, that's what this podcast is here to solve. <laughs> director. I've had, except for the ones that have been on this podcast. They're cool. <laughs> Everyone else. Uh, yeah. What was built? I, I do want to get to the color grade thing in a second. Um, yeah. That's always a topic. But what was kind of, um, what built your mental visual lexicon? Like, how did, how did you kind of hone your personal um, visual aesthetic? Because it is, you know, looking through your work, not exactly the same every time, but there is, there is like, you know, it rhymes, as George Lucas said. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think it does. I pride myself on that rhyming, as you say. Um, I think I do have a consistent aesthetic that changes from project to project, but there's there's uh, bones of this approach that kind of lurks beneath the surfaces of everything that are just always there. And that's a good question. Where did it come from? You know, I it wasn't always there, and it was something that didn't form all at once. Uh, it was something that took shooting narrative to really understand and explore because even though you correctly pointed it out that essentially I came up shooting music videos I've shot 118 music videos it's really hard to use music videos to develop a sense of style because something I realized early on was when I was because I've been fortunate enough to be to shoot narrative for the entire length of my career really you know it started it takes time it really takes time whether it's in prep or in the weeks of photography to understand what something should look like and to settle into the style and to find it. And commercial or music videos and commercials, they're so abbreviated in terms of the prep and the, the production phases. So it, it was only through narrative that I was really able to have the time to sit and think about style and how important style was and voice and my voice versus the voice of this project and what this project was calling for, how what the project was calling for perhaps stood in opposition to the way I would normally do things and allowing for growth opportunities. You work with directors who want to do things that seem to be different than what the project is calling for and what you yourself would be interested in doing, you know, and that's, but that's good. thing. That's a growth experience. You know, I've always, I think been fortunate to have that mentality of when the director's pushing back on what I want to do and when they're trying to push things in a direction that seems counterintuitive or I, I it doesn't make sense at first, that really getting inside their head, seeing through their eyes, understanding their perspective, and using that to supplement and amplify my own knowledge of the craft. You know, it's now my knowledge of the craft and approach to things is now just expanded by having, you know, um, <clears throat> mind melded with them. Sure. And so, but I, so, so, you know, to get back to the question, yeah, I've learned a lot from different directors that I've worked with, you know, part of my style has come from taking this from that person or that from that person, people that I've worked with directly who were like, wanted to do things differently that I did. And I was sort of forced to do them, but in a good way. And then I understood that they were right all along ultimately and adopted their components of their approach. Right. So there's a bit of, you know, this and that. There's also very formative, specific influences. You know, for example, uh, early on in my career, Tree of Life came out 
Sure. And I think that film, more than that, my lighting style and all that, it's not very like naturalistic y and all that. But I think I really was blown away by their usage of wide lenses. And they use wider lenses in that film than I've really, that I do personally. But just that concept of using wide lenses for everything if it's a wide shot, if it's a medium shot, if it's a close up, if it's an insert, just always a wide lens. That has stuck with me since Tree of Life came out. Interesting. Um, I also, spent countless hours shot listing films like i have my own version of shot deck on dropbox i bet Before, yeah i've got what was too. almost frustrated that shot deck came out because i was like i just spent the last 10 years building this for myself now everyone gets to have it with zero effort right <laughs> um but no but really what i got out of that process was just that osmosis of seeing these thousands of images. And of course you pause on the image that you want to capture. So every time there's something that feels, you know, definitive or important or striking in some way, you pause it and look at it and you take the time to capture it. And just going through hundreds and hundreds of films that way, I, even though I can't point to individual ones as much as I can, like with tree of life, that I think has informed where my look comes from. It's like the summation of all of these images that I've been studying so closely for so long. Yeah. I mean, would I, I've done the exact same thing. I got a Google drive folder full of my favorite, you know, work and, uh, may, tell me if this is what you did. Cause for me, it was, sounds like the same thing, which was, it was less about specific. Oh, they used this light or put light here, but you start to get drawn to stuff when, when you, when you've um, collected all the things that you like, you see all the similarities and you go, Oh, it's roughly, it's this thing. So when you get on a different set, you can apply that thing without having to get too specific where it wouldn't naturally fit in that project. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yes, it's, and you internalize it, you know, yeah. and it's not about us trying to create a specific thing in a specific reference. It's just in what I think it really is what I think, happened to me and you may be saying happened to you is I feel that the process of grabbing all of those stills and studying them I internalized a sense of style and tastefulness yeah because I think what I found was I was attracted to images that had a refined more refined like painterly type of quality and I think one of the things that I try to bring to the table is a sense of uh, elegance that isn't usually found in the type of work that I do. And I think that studied a lot of films that are not the type of films that I make, not genre films, just have this really elegant look that I'm kind of transposing onto the work that I do. Yeah. And, you know, I also saw on your website some really amazing photography. Um, do you... Is that just an extension of your cinematography or are there specific photographers that you were drawn to? Do you have like photo books? I know photo books, I got a shit ton of them, but I know those are pretty popular among cinematographers. I do. Yeah. I've, I, I always, you know, I kind of started my journey as a photographer in high school. I had a DSLR and I took tens of thousands of pictures. Uh, I was a lot more accessible than filmmaking. You know, yeah. I did filmmaking as well at high school, but I really took a ton of pictures and so it's always been part of my DNA and it, I 
continued to do it because it allows me to create projects that are fully my own and don't require the support or the assistance of others or resources to execute. I've always felt inspired by looking at photography and yeah, I've, it's all blurred out, but that's actually my photo bookshelf right there. Oh, the, the giant black blob. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, um, I, I really, what struck me was documentary street photography. Yeah. You know, my favorite photo book of all time. I don't, I'm not good at favorites really in general, but for whatever always been like this is the best one subway by bruce davidson all right that that i was gonna be i was thought you're gonna say something i have but i don't have that i also love haiti by bruce gilden and so so many but yeah that subway by bruce davidson really single-handed me re-energized my love of photography and my desire to do my own photography in about 20 i started shooting again more regularly in 2016 yeah yeah i assume that's <laughs> i'm just gonna hazard a guess is subway in new york <laughs> it is it is yeah figure. figure. yeah um oh that was what it was this is going back to the idea of production and design and stuff. Subways in the 80s in New York were production design oh to God. shit. <laughs> yeah, you really were. <laughs> yeah, the one, honestly, the, this, um, what's, which one is it? You have this, you got the, uh, the old byways. I don't actually, I don't. This, this is the one that, uh, got me excited was, uh, the Saul Leiter book. Yeah. Uh, the unseen because it's kind of I'm wondering if it's the same thing but it's a lot of this um, a lot of windows but also yeah. a lot of this stuff a lot yeah, of, a lot um, of the iconic Saul Leiter yeah style. well that book's dead um, but yeah what are you uh, primarily digital film photography I ch I've tried and aborted to do film photography several times now three times mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know why I keep coming back to it, but I realize it's a huge mistake each time. Uh, I, I'm just one of those people that likes to shoot a lot of images and select, you know, I want to have yeah. like when I, one day of photography, I want to be like 500 images. Right. Um, so film, I love the way that it looks. It just doesn't work for that cost wise. I also like to, I not all my projects are this way. This is a newer thing. Actually, my first few projects, if you look at the photo page, are all like pretty deep stop. Well, uh, most of them are. Um, but I've started shooting shallower from, I've gotten more into the large formatty aesthetic recently. Mm -hmm. And my experience with medium format film cameras is that I love the way that they look when the focus hits but I'm absolutely like super compulsive about needing the eyes to be sharp right? and shooting at the, the, the stop that I want shooting at the aperture. I want, I uh, just, I'm never able to get anything in focus like the subject, mm -hmm. um, which just drove me too crazy. Yeah. I not to turn this into the show and tell what it happens every time. Uh, this thing, Fujifilm let me the, uh, the GFX 100, the second, yeah. Yeah. This is the best camera ever made. Like, a, a, a photo camera. Uh, I have a hard time 
better than believing that it's better than the Canon R5. Although it is, it is. And I, I, all of my cinema cameras are Canon. I love Canon. All, hey. all my photo cameras are Fuji. But uh, that that thing is. I and also it shoots like 8K ProRes that looks really nice. Cool. But uh, to your point about eyes being in focus, you, I've been shooting that at uh, yeah, 80, yeah. 80 millimeters f 1.7 dialed every time. So that's a fun uh, thing. Talk to talk to me about how um, how did you get the Loki gig anyway? I'm sure you've yeah. asked it otherwise. Yeah, but answered uh, it. A um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead directed the second season of Loki, and they, uh, I think, they were in a situation where they needed to find a DP rather quickly, mm-hmm. and I think they did a lot. I don't know any of this. That's what I'm saying. I think. Okay. I think they did a lot of interviews really quickly and I have reason to believe they interviewed like a lot of people and I think they were having a hard time differentiating those people from each other because it came so fast and so furious with all of the interviews and the need to hire someone so quickly mm-hmm. and I think that was giving them a pretty serious headache and they knew what an important decision it was and they just kind of couldn't really make a choice based on all this endless smorgasbord of people on zoom and they were expressing i think that they expressed that to um a friend of mine evan yeah Kat. and he is like well you know i'm sure there's a lot of great people that you've been meeting and you can hire whoever you want but you know as long as you're uh struggling with the choice a little bit you should talk to my good friend isaac who shot evan directed the fourth and final season of Channel Zero, The Dream Door, mm-hmm. and uh, which I shot with him. And um, so, next thing I knew, I was on a, an official. First, I actually met with Marvel. They, I think, they like had a meeting where they had to talk to the DP before they passed them on to right and with the microchip in you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, cleared the Marvel hurdle. Yeah. Which was lovely. That was a, one of my favorite Zoom meetings I've ever had, and it just felt like so casual and friendly the whole time. Um, and then when I spoke to the guys, I had arrived at the conclusion: the big question for DPs with interviews is this: Do you come prepared with the pitch deck or not? Mm. Right. Um. Because a lot of times they'll ask you, hey, do you have anything you want to share? Or do you mind putting something together? You know, like 50% of the time they ask you something like that. Um, and in my experience, of the times that I've been asked to do it or done it, it's backfired about 50% of the time. Mm. Because if the images that you share aren't exactly what they're thinking, all of a sudden you've totally blown it. Right. They might not even know what they want. They just know that what you're giving them is the it. And so it's kind of better. A lot of times the smarter strategy, just to kind of listen to the director saying, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then just say it back to them, but slightly more technically. Right. Well, um, and, but that's kind of a bullshit, you know, manipulative way to do an interview. Right. So um, the question that I think, 
we face is put ourselves out there and create a good chance of losing the job or just be, um, you know, manipulative basically and try to just tell the director whatever they want to hear based on the cues they've given you over the course of the interview and maybe get an overall better chance to get the job. Right. But the thing is, if you get those images right, then you've got a, the best chance of all to get the job. Right. You know, the best chance ever to get the job is if you do the images and you fucking nail them. Right. But you have no idea what they're thinking and there's, you know, a million approaches to everything. So it's like, so I figured I wouldn't, had no chance of getting the job anyway, you know, cause it was too big of a job. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just, I will, I had stopped doing the images for a while. I hadn't done the images approach in an interview in a long time and I hadn't booked anything. And then I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do the deck. Right. And so what I did was I put a deck together of, um, sequences from the first season and how they were shot. And then a panel showing how I would have approached it myself to try to show how my style and my vision for the show was different than what the show had previously done. So I was, I was that going old. Yeah. You know, the successful thing <laughs> doing mine. But like I said, I didn't think I had a chance of getting the job anyway, so I might as well swing for the fences, which I knew it was. You know, I knew it was most likely going to lose me the job pretty quickly. Right. Um, but, you know, nothing to lose. Sometimes when you have nothing to lose is when you make the boldest choices that end up, you know, giving you what you're at. Yeah. So, uh, and it's funny because the guys, they just did not, no one on the call reacted. They were all, it was, you know, they're, they're really friendly and nice, but they weren't giving me much to work with. I think they were just playing their cards pretty close to their chest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, by the time the call was over, I thought I'd blown it and that I, and then I never expected to hear from them again, other than say, thank you for your time, you know? And as we were signing off, you know, saying goodbye, I was like doing that thing. It's like, kind of like, you know, Loki, and have you seen the last episode? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, when he goes out the airlock to sacrifice himself and like he kind of gives that look to Silk. Yes, like I'll see you guys never again. Like, right. Thank you so much, but this is the end for us. Right. That's kind of how I felt when I was leaving the call. I was like, thank you guys. I know I'm never going to get this job. So I'm going to say thank you in this like, never going to see you again kind of way. Peace. Right. That's hilarious. <laughs> and then, but then, yeah, then I ended up a few days later getting a call from my agent saying they wanted to book. That's rad. Yeah. Well, and you all, I mean, it does sound, it, it does feel like there's a lot of examples of, you know, you always hear, hear it about casting where like actors will go in and be like, I was not going to get that job. So I just sent it yeah. and they get it. Cause I yeah. wonder if, especially as being a DP, you know, um, now more than ever, it's easy to follow visual trends because the person who shot it's probably very open with their lighting setups and all this, you know, and all that info is very attainable. So you end up with potentially a lot of sameness. So by especially showing how you would do something different again, that's pretty bold, but I, I applaud it. But just, you know, a lot of people probably came in 
to those interviews thinking like, oh, I got to show that I know what's trendy. It yeah. probably gave them a lot of sameness. Generally, what I find is pretty much everyone all of the time is just trying to make stuff look trendy. Like yeah. what you see in work is just trend, 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 trend. So it's Under our commercials. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually not terribly difficult to distinguish yourself if you're bold enough to make that move. Yeah. There's a lot to distinguish yourself from. Uh, and what I learned later was that's what the guys wanted to do too. You know, they, I think Marvel really smartly, they knew that Loki was such a special show and that the first season had worked so wonderfully, but you kind of can't capture lightning in a bottle twice in a lot of ways. And they knew to make it as good as possible. Maybe they, they needed to find the most creative team possible to get behind it and and to take the reins and that type of person is never going to want to just continue to do what had been done before they're always going to the best and most creative people are always going to want to do their own specific vision i believe and that's what they found in justin and aaron you don't hire justin and aaron unless you want them to do what they do and what we do is very specific to them and it definitely was not at all like the first season of loki so Marvel had already made the decision to 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 change the approach to season two dramatically. And I think that's how the guys sold themselves. They're like, look, if you hire us, we're going to do our thing. And it's a lot different than what the show had been doing before. So I think I actually kind of gave them the same pitch that they gave to Marvel. And I think that that's what Marvel was looking for in the first place anyway. So what were uh, visually some of the things that... Um who was the first DP? Madeline Gorka? No, she did. Uh, Autumn Gerald Arkapal. There you go. I, I DM'd her. She did not DM me back. I was trying to get her on the podcast last year. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what were some of the things that she was doing that uh, you kind of differentiated yourself by? Because obviously, the, I'm sure Marvel didn't want you to do something wholly different. You know, now this is a lit like WandaVision. Um, but what were some of the things that you kind of changed? Uh, left her with her style and some of the things that maybe you you folded over that seemed to make sense for you guys, if anything. Well, I think we changed everything. I don't think we left it from her style. Um, we changed the camera from Sony Venice to Alexa Mini LF. It changed the format from anamorphic to spherical. That was going to be the big one. <laughs> and aspect ratio from 239 to 220. We changed from using, you know, fancy Panavision lenses to using prosumer lenses, the Tokina Cinema Vistas. Those are great fucking lenses, though. <laughs> Shout out to Ryan Avery. They, they, uh, we, we, um, changed from using longer lenses to using much wider lenses, which kind of goes along with the switch to spherical. Um, and then, one of the biggest things, probably the biggest thing we changed was the the style of coverage. The first season of Loki is very formal. You know, there's static shots, there's dolly shots, there's crane shots. We still have some crane work in season two, but everything is handheld for the most part, unless there's a specific... In the TVA, certainly, everything is handheld or a zoom, like a slow, creeping 70s zoom. Right. So the handheld was the biggest shakeup, I think. It really gives the show an entirely different feel because the show was so formal and precise before, and now it's kind of like super energetic and loose. Mm. And 
Uh, we changed the lighting. All of the lighting was LED on the first season. Change it all to tungsten. Uh, going oh, on interesting. With, yeah. I would have thought it was the other way. Yeah. And then on the first season, because a lot, you know, they were using LED lights so they could set whatever the color. There's a lot of colorful stuff in the first season. There's color all over the place. There's no colorful lighting in the second season. We eradicated all colorful lighting from the second season. Oh, there's no pink Lamentis or the blue city on Lamentis or that, you know, super colorful train or, you know, the throne right saturated cyan light. There's nothing like that in the second season. It's all just shades of white from cool to warm. Um, we started using a lot more in-camera filtration as well. Mm. We used in-camera filtration that was designed to be additive to the effect of the haze on the sets. Because we were only the allowed- Smoke to- filters? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we were only really able to use so much haze because of VFX stuff. You know, right. haze kind of- Years of blue screen and and um, we wanted the haze level to be consistent, so we kind of figured out how the heaviest that we could put the haze when we were shooting on our blue screen sets, and then we matched it to that throughout all of the rest of the scenes, even if there wasn't blue screen, to to create that consistency. Then we had diffusion filtration, we had the smoke, and then we did smoke and post as well. The colorist Matt Watkins. Uh, developed a in resolve complicated smoke uh filter that really added a lot um and yeah i mean we changed everything pretty much everything yeah <laughs> well i guess to the to my point earlier uh in my head they still look kind of similar but we're gonna have to chalk that up to the uh production designer and the and the costuming and, and of course the actors being the same we had the same production designer and the same costume designer, which really gave us that foundation that we could shake things up on top of. Or yeah, about. totally. That's actually great to hear too, because that's, uh, I'll have to think about that thought, but it does make me happy. Uh, what, uh, what was your, I can go three different directions here. What was your relationship like with the colorist and what were you guys kind of doing in the grade to enhance the look? You already mentioned the smoke, but like, um, you know, so, certainly some of the uh, shots, like especially in the um, the control room, whatever you want to call it, you know, in front of the loom, mm-hmm. um, are are uh, more heavily graded than other shots. You know, um, so kind of when were you making those choices, and uh, how you know how heavy was the hand in in certain situations versus more gentle, and etc. In general, the first at Matt Watson, the colorist and I, the first thing that we did was build the lot. You know, right. we knew we wanted the show to have a really heavy and definitive look going into it. We were going for a film emulation thing, right. not just on the lot, but across the board. I mean, Tungsten was even part of that. We wanted to create the look of an old school movie. It's like old school movie emulation in addition to like film stock emulation. Right, know? right. Um, and... Um, the idea was to make it look like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. So we um, <clears throat> we focused a lot of time and energy and conversation and testing and development and iteration on the LUT. And it's a LUT that's based on 500T, but we made modifications to it to make it feel more vintage, like more desaturated, 
warmer. We let the warmth kind of infect uh, the shadows a bit because 500T is actually pretty good at keeping the shadows clean and even a little cool. You know, you see a lot of your T emulation emphasizes cool shadows. So we kind of removed that component of it, went in the opposite direction, desaturated a bit. It had something that was based on 500T, um, but actually feels more like a stock you might see in the early 70s. Sure. And uh, it was really heavy as well. We wanted the lighting to feel in practice like lighting in old school movies. So in effect, the lighting pushed the stop down like 1.1 stops. Uh, um, and then I rated the camera to 640 ISO on top of that, which was like, like 1.4 stops down. And so we were, we basically overexposed everything by a stop and a half. Right. And the effect was we were shooting at about, we were lighting for uh, a four stop because that's what our, our biggest zoom that we could use, whatever. We never knew when that was going to come into play. It had to be on the table at all times. Right. And I never want to relight a set just because we have to put on a zoom lens. I just light everything as if assuming that the zoom is going to be used on that set. So we were lighting to a T4 and rating that at ISO 320. Mm. That is very much a light level that's consistent with what you would get on one of those older films. I yeah. expect yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey and Live and Let Die were actually probably lit to a fairly similar stop because they loved shooting at four back then and the stock was a lot slower than it is now. Right. And... um. So yeah, Matt and I developed the LUT and and then I worked with the colorist, Jay Patel, on who is absolutely incredible and he had a lot of experience with Marvel. So he had a real insight, not just into what it's like as an onset DIT, but how his work is used through the whole Marvel specific pipeline. Right. So he was an enormous help and a major consultant just on the whole workflow and the process. And we, I'd never done this before, but on that show, I did really get into live grading stuff and generating CDLs to push through a post. Because Marvel, they're they're very, very specific and precise about their post pipeline. As you know, they do a tremendous amount of post work. Yeah. So they, the CDLs, they, they have it all worked out. It's anything you do in a CDL, you can be very confident is going to follow that footage through the pipeline. So we had the, you know, that knowledge that what we did with the live grade would be honored throughout. And yeah, we, the LUT wasn't exactly just drag and drop perfect for every single scene or location. We often had to increase saturation and the TVA, we rarely had to do anything, but we discovered one of our lenses was a little darker than the other lenses or, um, the 29 and some lenses were a little warmer, a little cooler. We kind of developed lens-specific adjusts that we would make. Oh, this lens is going on. Slap that guy on there, and so on. So we did a lot of CDL work, as little as possible. You know, you never want to do that unless you have to. But we did a lot of that. Uh, and then in in post, when we got into post with Matt, who works full time at Marvel Finishing, uh, it was really about just seeing things all the way through nothing nothing was changed the show actually pretty much looked in terms of the color the way that we were seeing it on set with certain exceptions 
And I think you pointed out, did you say the temporal core? Yeah. There's- yeah, I mean, you, I wish you weren't able to tell that, you know? Well, I, I will say I just saw a screenshot of Obi and I was and I was like, oh, that is a little that's touched. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. The thing is that one, we had a lot of trouble with the lighting on set. Mm. So we were in a situation where um, we needed to be emulating the light of the loom overheating at all times on that set. Right. And But depending on what the shot was and where the actors went where they were moving, we had to use one of two entirely different lighting setups. Gotcha. Was where the lights were very close to that window. There was an array of lights that filled that window approximately one meter out from the window. And those lights, because they're so close, you really get hit by the inverse square law. Right. So if you have a shot of someone next that's close to the window, they're going to be super hot. And then someone in the background might be super, you know, not feeling the light of the loom at all. Right. And you have to shoot those shots at the same time. Maybe you're using, we mostly just used one camera, but maybe you were using two cameras in that moment, or maybe the camera goes and has to find a character, follow them through the whole space. And you get some of them when they're dark, some of them are the not. We try to dial the lights up and down as they get closer and further from those lights, but it doesn't always work. You had situations where a character that should be bright just wasn't getting the light that they should have been because for whatever reason, usually uh, it has to do with VFX and what they need in that window. If they need it clear, if they need to see the blue screen back there. If there's weird reflections. Right. Uh, it also depended on how much we needed to fill that space with light. We couldn't fill the room with loom light unless we used the close lights because the second lighting setup we had were those same lights, but a bigger array of them, Vortex 8s, much further the away. Vortexes. Yeah, they're amazing. So we had dozens and dozens of them hanging like 60 feet away. That is much more accurate to the feel of a faraway source, like the overheating loom. So in a lot of ways, that's ideal. Also, inverse square law problems go away because they're far enough away. The brightness of a subject at the window or at the back of the control room is similar enough that you don't need to dial up and down or worry about someone being dark in back or bright in front. Right. Because they're far away, they're getting cut by the window. So the now what you have is the sides of the room are totally dark, and you just have this relatively narrower than you would think shaft of light down the center of the room. So it's like, okay, now you have someone who's like close to the window, but just off to the side a little bit is completely dark. Right, right. So, and, and we don't get to pick which lighting setup we get to use because that's being determined by VFX needs. Oh, uh, okay. So it's like whichever one you use, you're introducing problems and you can't even choose which one to use based on like the lighting needs of the shot. It's usually determined by the VFX needs of the shot. Right. Sometimes, even though there's problems, whatever you do, sometimes the option that's best for the lighting is, is like the opposite of what you have to do for the VFX concerns. Right. That set. So basically, the bottom line is when that thing was cut together, sometimes we got pretty lucky, but sometimes you just did not feel the light of the loom enough on the subject's face. So we had to enhance the feeling of warmth and brightness from time to time. 
Yeah. And I think that's probably what you saw in the still of OB. Yeah, pr- probably. But also, um, I would not have guessed. I just figured it was like, oh, that was the grade. Like, I thought it was a creative decision more so than, oh, you were handed to a completely different lighting set. Like, that didn't stand out at all. So I think yeah. you guys did a good job right. of you, getting yeah. everything massaged in, you know? When we did realize that we would have to help that scene more than we had hoped in the grade, I did feel I was on team. Okay, well, we can, if we're going to do it anyway, let's use that to push it a little bit further. And for whatever reason, I was feeling inspired by like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek and I was like, you know, let's just make it a little bit more like teal and orangey, like blockbustery, because there's something that's like a, such a blockbuster kind of moment. It fit what was happening in that scene. Well, and that room does feel like a, uh, yeah. like a, what do you call it? Bridge of the Enterprise. Bridge. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Let's make it feel like Star Trek 2009 in there. Yeah, it is. It's a. I mean, like I said, the whole thing looks good. I did see in another article that you, um, because obviously all the lighting you can. For anyone listening, you can see there's no lights on the floor. You can see fucking everything in in uh, most of those shots. Um, that you had like a little boom pole with a with like a light on it that someone was chasing the camera around to get some eye light or uh, fill on the faces of people. That's right. Yeah, in the TVA, a lot of the lighting comes from above, which can lead to characters, you know, not receiving proper light of their eyes or at least eye light you know because my philosophy is you want that ping of eye light in there 100 percent of the time and so not only is your light coming from above but the the camera's on a wide lens handheld doing these moving masters all the characters are moving around the actors we we tried to keep them moving and the spaces are big and we're exploring the spaces a lot of never There's nowhere to hide. There's just no opportunity to put lights on the set, on the floor. There's nowhere to like put a stand with an eye light because the character is going to move to another place anyway, right? So we adopted the approach of having a battery powered in a backpack eye light unit, a gem ball with LEDs so that we could dim it up and down on a painter's pole and a spark was running around chasing actors with it, trying to stay by the camera. And then we would try to mitigate its effect on the performer's face by dialing it up and down as we approached or receded from them. Mm-hmm. It was remarkably effective. If you, I think, dare I say, Loki season two is functions as a case study in excellent flawlessly executed eye lighting under extreme difficult eye light circumstances. I hell yeah, dude. Well, I'll, I'll mark it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll back that up. Cause I, I, what's funny is I, uh, I did something. So I got a boom pole with a little clampy and then I got one of those two foot quasars and then put a big umbrella on it. And I've been using, I've been kind of doing not for eye light purposes, it's actually just for key light, but like, um, for like walk and talks outdoors and stuff. You know, or you've, like maybe at night you've got oh, it's like having that. It's is nice. It's a nice little thing. That's where LEDs do come in handy. <laughs> yeah, they, they sure do. Yeah. So was the spark managing the exposure himself, or was that someone else? No, no, that was um, our board operator who no. was usually in the DP tent. It was me, the gaffer, and the board op, and. 
the gaffer, I, it's it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, it's just this hierarchical thing, but it's like, I'm really technically not supposed to tell the board op what to do. Right. So I would, we all three of us would be in there like a line. It would be like me asking the gaffer to do something who would then tell the board op I had to do it. Like it's when, when someone's met, tell Sydney, I don't like the way she dressed it. Uh, Sydney says she doesn't like the way. <laughs> But it sometimes it feels silly, but other times you see how important it is to maintain that because if the gaffer gets cut out of that loop and they don't know and they see something that wasn't the way they thought it was or they left it, it can cause all kinds of chaos and crossed wires, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 just it really is for the best that the gaffer and all lighting instruction is relayed through the gaffer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. Was there, um, obviously you're in a couple different time eras. You're in obviously a couple different locations, sometimes different time eras in the same location. Were there, um, really strong different approaches to, you know, for like the world's fair situation or like the 1800s, whatever that was versus more modern stuff, or were you trying to keep the look, uh, your approach to the look relatively consistent regardless of, of time? We tried to keep, you know, that's a great question and it's a balancing act. We wanted to differentiate each era with its own bespoke look while at the same time making sure that they fit um, harmoniously within the tapestry that was the overall look of season two. So that means, you know, keeping certain things always the same and then changing other things. Uh, but we tried to play around with focal length in the different eras and camera support platforms, you know, so you'll see episode five, there's not nearly as much handheld in episode three. When we go to the 1893 world's fair, there's not nearly as much handheld. Uh, there's longer, there's longer lenses. For example, in 1893, we used the R 65 mil a lot more because it just felt like an old school, like daguerreotype portrait lens to us. It just has that aesthetic to it. Uh, qualitatively, we're like, it just feels like that. You know, we're not going to get into too much detail other than that, but it feels right. feels like a daguerreotype lens. So we're going to slap that thing on there as any chance we get. Um, and in the eighties, you know, we saturated the grade a lot more like on set in the CDLs. Mm -hmm. We were like, it just didn't feel like the eighties until we were really getting those rich, you know, blues and reds and yellows and those primary colors. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas it was the opposite with the 1800s. It's less saturated. Everything is more muddy and brown and just kind of uniform. But yes, they, I will leap it in general, not just on Loki. I'll leap at any opportunity to create a little sub look for a certain part of the film or a location or a time period. It's, it's never just take the house style and drag it all the way across the board. We're always looking for opportunities to break out of that box. Sure. Did you, uh, what was the conversation? This is a dumb question for nerds, but, uh, how, how long was the conversation about how much grain to put in? He knew pretty quick that we wanted to do grain going back to the whole like 2001, late sixties, early seventies film thing. We knew that grain was going to be a big part of that. So the conversation about grain was literally had on day one of hard prep in London. Yeah. And immediately everyone expressed support and interest. 
and um, we were told that um, we would probably be able to get away with it. We would just have to present some choices to Marvel and see how that they were feeling about it. And sure enough, we shot some test footage through different levels of grain and other, because the grain was always a package. You know, it comes with chromatic aberration and highlight halogen and gate weave and edge smudging and so on. So we kind of put together different combos of these things, kind of in a like one, two, three, light, medium, heavy presentation that was screened for certain Marvel executives. And they actually didn't have that strong of an opinion. They were just like, yeah, this looks cool. You know, I mean, always gonna, want. Yeah, it's always going to change. It's going to be really determined finally in post. But the sign off was there for, yes, you can do a version of this for sure. Right. And then it was it was pretty remarkable to me because, you know, our instincts are always to push this film look as far as we can. And you're always worried that the studio is going to want to do a more moderate version of it. And we were told that much by people that, that, you know, knew of these things and had worked for Marvel for a long time. But ultimately, what ended up happening was we put heavier grain on the episode, episode three, 1893. They put significantly heavier grain on that episode like I was saying, to do something to differentiate it, you know, because right. I try to get it where we can. And they put 16 mil, it was 35 mil across the season. Then they put 16 mil grain on 1893. And when people at the studio saw it, they liked it so much. They were like, wow, the grain in that episode though, that's great. Can we do that for the whole thing? And then they ended up taking that 16 mil look and applying it to the whole season. So there's no longer any differentiation there, but the good, but the good thing is the whole season leaned much heavier, heavier into the grain. Yeah. Well, cause there was two thought one. I, I, so I, you know, I freelance color. So, uh, the, um, the 16, do you know if you were just using the stock resolve or like live grain or anything like that or pixel tool? Uh, yeah. Marvel. So Marvel, um, everything you see pretty much that Marvel does like that is proprietary. Mm, uh, yeah. they don't, they don't screw around with licensing. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and Fair. they have the resources to build all those elements proprietarily. Yeah. 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 So that yeah. is proprietary Marvel. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, cause that kind of goes into my second question, which is, I know at least I have seen this like patent where Netflix will add the grain at the user level. Because uh, compression, I guess yeah. it like it like reads it, cleans it, and then post compression adds the grain. And so I was going to ask, like, did you guys have to consider how much it would be, how legible it would be for the for the viewer at the end of the pipeline? Oh, man. They the pipeline, 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 pipeline. Marvel does not fuck around when it comes to the pipeline. They have got that thing perfected, and they know all about how compression can ruin grain. So you'll see, I think, that the grain looks pretty nice and looks great. And there was a battery of compression-specific grain tests. You know, it wasn't what grain looked best in the suite. It's what grain looked best after it was on Disney+. And that was tested thoroughly. Yeah. So, it was, oh yeah, oh yeah, we were, we were well ahead of that one. Yeah, I, I was interviewing uh, Gregory Middleton for Moon Knight. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me was I was like, how do you, because I think I've interviewed maybe two or three Marvel DPs. And uh, 
I was like, how do you guys keep the, the Marvel look consistent? And, he, and at one point he was like, oh, they just got like a library of LUTs you can use. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, we, I can't remember what he said. And he's like, we went to one movie. We like, maybe it was like Winter Soldier, I, you know, whatever. And he goes, uh, I think we grabbed that one and modified that one a little bit. And they were like, yeah, good, good for you. And I was like, it didn't occur to me that Marvel would keep all the CDLs and all the LUTs from all the projects, but why wouldn't they? I never heard about this love library. Oh, you, you got to call Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually did speak with Greg before. Uh, oh, cool. Before, to get a little bit of a debrief on what it was like to work with Marvel. Yeah. Did he say anything you can share? Um, He and I spoke for like three hours, so he might have said it. <laughs> I mean, at this point, that was 18 months ago at this point. Right. Um, but I... I think he reassured me, you know, that the support and the infrastructure were there. He definitely tipped me off on some things to look out for that I'm not going to share. Sure. But, um, but, uh, it was enormously helpful and very encouraging. Yeah. Greg's great dude. Like, like I said, we were talking for like three hours and at one point one of us went like, Hey, do you want to get dinner? Yeah. And then like we, separately, you know, we, <laughs> all right, well, we'll catch up later. And then took off. We're like, damn, that was a long one. Um, love that dude. Uh, but I, you know, I don't want to keep in, I got a, a fresh kid and whatnot, but, um, you know, the show looks awesome and, uh, it, it's a lot of fun and I'm glad, you know, Loki was like in my head, this is, I don't want to toot your horn too much, but Loki to me felt like the Marvel and or in that it was unique and like really compelling versus maybe a lot of, not just Marvel shows, but I think a lot of stuff out there sometimes can get a little samey. You know, and Loki didn't yeah. feel that way at all. I yeah, thank you. I'd like to to end then on just a little bit of advice for other people, sure. uh, for Marvel, um, which is what Loki did in order to feel special. I believe is accessible to every production mm-hmm. Marveler. It's it's not Marvel doesn't have a look that they force you to emulate you're allowed to pick your camera pick your lenses pick your aspect ratio i mean no one had ever done 220 before for Marvel, you know? mm. they, that's their animated show i forget what it's called that's it's 220 but there's no live action 220 marvel um and the grain you know they wanted the grain heavier you know marvel is unbelievably accommodating to creatives open-minded and supportive mm. it is on the creators to rise to the occasion and to develop a vision that's specific enough because it will be possible. It will be accepted. It will be encouraged and it will be supported. It's on you. You can do it. Um, you just have to put that thing together and you've got to, you got to get ahead of things. The key is to figure out what you want to do relatively early on in pre-production, because I know for a fact there have been Marvel productions that have kind of worked their way into figuring out what they wanted to do as they progressed through production and post and that strategy that doesn't work as well they came out i remember there was an article recently where they came out and basically some executive was like admitted that's what they were doing and they're like we're gonna go with like showrunners and head writers now and everyone was like you're gonna now like what well i'm only speaking of the visual yeah yeah any of the stuff or you know, development, but with regard to the cinematography, it's possible to do whatever you want. It's just important that you come up with your ideas in a timely fashion and present them. Uh, I, and if you, 
You had a massive Bible, didn't you? I did. Bible. 712 page Bible that was shared an earlier form of it. It eventually got to 700, probably a 300 page version was shared with Marvel early on in the process. Mm. Uh, but yeah, come on. Yeah. It's, it's on you. Basically what I'm saying is it is on you. And, and I, I would hope that more and more cinematographers will be rising to the occasion and, and giving really definitive stylistic looks to Marvel productions. Yeah. I hope for that as well. Well, um, like I said, man, I'll, I'll let you go, but it was fantastic chatting with you. Um, I, I know you said you had something coming up, so maybe when you're done with that, you can come on back and uh, chat with that. I do. I do. All right. Well, I hope to see you soon enough, man. You too, brother. Take care. See you. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support. And as always, thanks for listening.